Verse 5, the messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, There came a man to meet us and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Interesting, interesting, because uh, this, this garment of hair is, and the belt is reminiscent of John the Baptist with his camel hair garment and, and his belt. Yeah, it's interesting. The study note's interesting on this point. So, garment of hair, that's the, fr- that's the translation in English. In Hebrew, Baal or possessor of hair. So again, Baal could be Lord, so Lord of hair. It's very interesting. It's used only here, this, this expression. Either his hair, including his beard, was long, or he wore a hairy garment, which became characteristic of the prophets. Probably the latter, given that it's characteristic of the prophets. John the Baptist thus picks it up, probably. But it's ambiguous enough that it could be that his hair and his beard had just kind of become indistinguishable from his clothing. I don't know. Isn't that great? Yeah, exactly. A really hairy guy. Maybe this was Chewbacca's (laughs) relative. Yeah, well... Okay, so that's, that's an interesting aside there. I think it makes the most sense just to think of it as a, as a garment of hair, an animal, animal hair or something like that. Um, which, of course, is not comfortable usually, generally, and so would be a sign of, of penitence and a sort of visible sign over and against the soft clothing of, of kings and the upper class. All right, verse 9. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 men with his 50. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of 50, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. All right. Interesting, um, the study note points this out, that in his response, if I am a man of God, uh, immediate mocking reply, likely answering the captain in the manner he had addressed Elijah. So um, that, that seems to give you a little bit of the background there that this, when the commander says, O man of God, this might have been a kind of mocking expression to which then Elijah returns in kind and the fire comes down from heaven and consumes him. All right, verse 11. Again the king sent to him another captain of 50 men with his 50. This is like, what's, that, what's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over again, accepting a different result, or expecting a different result. Yeah, so here we go again. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Again, the king sent the captain of a third 50 with his 50. I mean, could you imagine? And, yeah, well, you wouldn't really want to serve a king like this either. And the third captain of 50 went up and came and 
fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him, O man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of 50 men with their 50s. Yeah, but now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. Now, I should have pointed this out a minute ago, but this angel of the Lord figure, we always want to have in mind in the first place that this is the pre-incarnate Christ. This is Jesus. And so that's, unless the text demonstrates otherwise, that's kind of just our general working assumption. <clears throat> okay, so finally, third time's the charm. Nobody gets cooked on the hill. And uh, Elijah is willing to go down. Verse, uh, yeah, just the last, last part of verse 15. So he arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. For those of you who may have come in late, chapter 1, verse uh, 16 is what we just finished. So, uh, for all the detail and for all the action taking place, we have a real simple narrative, a real simple history at this point, of course, uh, Ahaziah has taken over for Ahab. Ahaziah is an idolater. He's fallen. Now he's sent messengers to Baalzebub to see if he will recover. And of course, those messengers are interrupted by Elijah, who says, No, you won't recover precisely because you went to a false god. And then the king sends. 50, they get burned. Another 50, they get burned. This final 50, uh, Elijah does not burn them, but goes to the king and tells him now directly that for his idolatry he's going to die. Verse 17, so he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Um, this too then brings to fulfillment the final punishment on the line of Ahab. Ahaziah has no son. They're cut off. That's it. That's the end of that dynasty, as it were. And we have here a, a near completion of the works of Elijah. All right, any thoughts, any questions as we finish the first chapter of 2 Kings? Straightforward enough. Let's keep going. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets, remember this is a rather mysterious uh, kind of name and kind of group. We don't know that much of the sons of the prophets. They continue to, uh, to show up in the text. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. 
Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Yeah, it's very interesting. That's very interesting. Although the study notes, I'm looking through them now, don't don't give any real insight as to as to what's going on here. You know, why is it specifically that Elijah wishes to leave Elisha behind and Elisha will not. Hmm. All right, verse 6. Then Elijah said to them, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. I mean, it is interesting because you kind of have this backtracking. The Jordan, of course, is the entry point. We've got a lot going on here in terms of symbol and type, but I don't know what the why don't you stay here, no, I'm going with you thing is. Um, But of course, they're going back through. uh, Jericho was the gateway to the promised land. They crossed the, I mean, in a sense, it was the gateway. The Jordan is like the front door. That's where they cross. You remember they crossed through the Jordan with the, with the Ark of the Covenant on dry ground, and then they have to take Jericho as the gateway, the fortified city of Jericho, in order to enter the Promised Land. So there's this backtracking going on. Of course, we talked about, um, we've talked to some extent at least of how Elijah is a type and foreshadowing of, of John the Baptist. John the Baptist both is and isn't. Uh, Elijah, who was promised. And interesting that they're going to the Jordan at the end of Elijah's ministry, and that, of course, is the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry at the Jordan. We've also, today is Ascension Day, and in the taking up of Elijah in the whirlwind, we have a type of the Ascension of Christ where he's taken up in the cloud. So we've got a lot of we've got a lot of kind of typological themes here to consider and ways in which they point to John the Baptist and Christ. But there's quite a bit of mystery here as well. All right, well verse 6, we'll see we'll see some similar themes with crossing the Jordan on dry ground. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So here's the third, the third instance. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons and prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water. In rolling it up, it kind of takes the form of a staff. Maybe the, stu- yeah, the study note even says this. Yes, when this rectangular cloak was rolled, it would take the shape of a rod. Moses had stretched out his rod to open a path through the Red Sea. So we've got echoes of, of Moses here. Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. You know, it's very interesting because Israel enters on dry ground. Miraculously, now Elijah is exiting on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, 
Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. This is inheritance language. Inheritance language. Yeah, the study note says, Firstborn son typically received twice the inheritance of the other children. Elisha requested a share of his father's spirit, double that of the other sons of the prophets. So there, uh, yeah, there, I mean, there's just so much going on, but none of it's quite definitive. You have this sonship, this inheritance motif going on. You've got with this threefold structure, but there's two threes. You've got the threefold 50, and now you've got the threefold stay behind, but here, but, but no, I'm coming. It is a little bit reminiscent. It has parts that are reminiscent of, um, remember how our Lord uh, treats treats Peter and institutes his successor with this same threefold, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. It's almost as if like there's a challenge and the challenge is met. Stay behind. No, I'm coming after. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. And this sort of passing on of the mantle, quite literally in this case, it's where that phrase comes from, I think. such that Elisha will become the successor of Elijah. Um, you have this sonship kind of motif going on, with the double portion being requested. Verse 10, And he said, You have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken up from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. I mean, obviously, obviously there's a lot of awareness of what's going on. There's a lot of awareness that this is Elijah's last journey, as it were, that he, he's aware that he's going to be taken up. Elisha's aware. The other prophets that they encounter are aware. Everybody's aware of what's going on. So then Elijah says very plainly that if you, if you see this thing, then you will have the double portion. If you don't see it, you won't. Verse 11, as they went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. So this makes Elijah the second major biblical character to, to not really die, but to be uh, brought directly into heaven, translated into heaven, taken up. Enoch from Genesis is, is so also ascended to heaven, and so here to Elijah. Both types of the ascension of Jesus. Um, after Jesus' uh, resurrection, he spends 40 days showing himself with definitive proofs to over 500 people that he is in fact risen from the dead. Um, he allows himself to be, to be touched, to be grasped, his wounds to be explored. He eats and drinks with his disciples and with these others, proving that he's no ghost or apparition or vision. Um, he actually eats the food that's in front of them, etc. And then 40 days after these 40 days of proofs, he himself ascends in a cloud as Elijah ascends in the whirlwind. So ways in which Elijah is a type of John the Baptist, ways in which Elijah is a type of Christ. 
And then, of course, in the narrative itself, you have this handing off of the, of the prophetic mantle to Elisha. And then I was reflecting on how, in some ways, that's paralleled as um, Christ hands over the mantle the, of, of his own office, the New Testament office of apostle, the office of Christ handed over to, to Peter. Because Jesus is the good shepherd, the sheep are his own, and then he says to Peter, feed my sheep, pastor my sheep, tend my flock. And so he hands over the pastoral office to his successor, Peter, the first amongst equals, the first amongst the apostles. So there's lots going on in terms of type and foreshadowing. All right, at this point in time, um, to finish verse 12, after he sees him no more, then Elisha takes hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. This is the sign of uh, mourning, sign of the, uh, of the loss of his, uh, of his master. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Obviously, in seeing the vision, he knows that the double portion has been given to him. He calls upon the Lord. Um, the Lord is with him. He strikes the water, just as Elijah had just done, and performs the same miracle. And then we're going to see a lot of parallels between Elijah and Elisha, and their two ministries, and their two miracles. Or, I mean, sorry, not their two miracles, but their two, yeah, their two ministries, the miracles they work. There's going to be a lot of parallelism between these two. I mean, their names are even very similar. On page 581 in your Lutheran Study Bible, you have the travels of Elijah and the travels of Elisha. And you can do some comparison there if you like. Again, very, very similar. Okay, and that, that, is, um, that is then the biblical tale of Elijah. Hard to overstate his importance, especially given his ongoing importance in the New Testament. Of course, he shows up with Moses at the Transfiguration. At which point in time Jesus talks about his exodus. And Moses obviously led them through the exodus. And you have a kind of, you have a kind of splitting, a type of splitting the Red Sea and the splitting of the, the Jordan that Elijah does. It's very interesting. It's very interesting. And why those two men? You have the law and the prophets. But probably even more, you have kind of an office and a type going on there in the transfiguration. Because otherwise, it sure would be easy to have Abraham and Moses there. But you have Moses and Elijah, prophetic office. Almost has to be what it is. Because, or at least that's like the emphasis. There's much, there, you could argue there's a lot going on there, but that has to be the emphasis. Moses, I mean, obviously he writes the Torah, and the Torah speaks of Christ everywhere and prophesies of Christ everywhere, but, but just a one-to-one -one kind of thing. Moses is told that a prophet greater than he will come, and he proclaims this prophet greater than he, and that prophet greater than he. Everything Moses is and more is Christ. You know, in the, in, the, in the 
theology of the scriptures, there's very little that, that puts Moses and Christ in contrast with one another. You can certainly see a contrast between the Old and New Covenants and Moses sort of being the mediator of the first covenant and Christ of the second. In that respect, you get some contrast. But by and large, you get much more positive uh, comparison. And as Moses was, so Christ is, and more. And then likewise with Elijah, obviously. But it's hard, it's hard to, again, overstate the impact that Elijah has. Even though so little is written of him, he doesn't write a book. We have, we have precious little of his preaching, but he looms very, very large in, in the, uh, amongst the prophets of the Old Testament. Okay, so then we move on to Elisha, who in many ways is parallel to Elijah, um, but doesn't really have the... It's almost as if he's a continuation of Elijah in many respects. But let's stop and see if you have any thoughts or anything to add. Yes, please. Yeah, the horse and the rider, of course, there is, is Egypt being destroyed. Here is not the chariots of Egypt, but the chariots of heaven. So you've got kind of an asymmetrical contrast there. Yeah, I should have mentioned um, in the uh, in. Remember when James and John? Remember how how the three uh, amongst the disciples, amongst the twelve, there's the three: Peter, James, and John, that kind of seem to be the privilege. They get to do certain things that the others don't, and then even amongst them, Peter is kind of the preeminent. Um, but remember, remember how the. I can't remember, I think it was a Samaritan city that had rejected Jesus. And do you remember how James and John said to the Lord, do you want us to call down fire upon this city and burn and consume them? They get a bad rap because we, we think, oh, how, how ungracious, how terrible. But what are they think, what, how are they thinking? They're thinking in, in biblical terms. They're thinking that this, is, that this is Elijah, our Elijah, who has been rejected. This is the Messiah who's been rejected. It's kind of a biblical way of thinking where they think of fire coming down upon the adversaries, upon those who reject him. And of course, the Lord says, no, we we've, we've have come on a mission of, of mercy. And the Lord knows full well that the, the fire of judgment comes at the very end, but now is the day of salvation. So there's that. And then, yeah, and then I think the study note points this out. I've never really thought that much about it, but apparently this is of some interest or controversy, but the, the nature of the chariots and horses of fire. If you look at the footnote on chapter 2, verse 11, the study note says, either a vision or angels. I don't know why you'd say it's a vision. I guess just in the I, I guess the only argument to be made there was this question of whether or not Elisha would see it. And then this is interesting too, um, on angels appearing as animals. Because I guess, because I guess you could say I don't know. I don't know. This is, seems to be a confusion of categories to me. I don't really see why you have to do this. Like are you going to say that the horses are angels? Or are you going to say that the chariots are angels? I I don't know. It seems like it seems more confusing than helpful. But anyway, on angels appearing as animals, see note on Ezekiel 10.1. Elisha later saw the mountains around, hard-pressed. Sorry, I've got so much writing in here, I can't really follow. Elisha later saw the mountains around, hard-pressed, hard but then why does it say scenario? I'm not getting the grammar there. <laughs> Full of horses and chariots of fire. So we're going to see this again in um, chapter 6 coming up. Chapter 6, verse 17, we'll kind of revisit this. It's a visible demonstration of God's protection and power. 
Yeah, and then he goes up into heaven, so it says then the, on this note, where God's saints... will reside bodily hereafter in God's presence. Boy, that's convoluted. Either the editor's not having a great day or I'm not. One of the two, because we're not, we're not really on the same page in this note. I think they're just trying to say that, I think they're trying to say that as Elijah goes up in his body, this is a, this is a prefiguring of the resurrection. And it is. It's a denunciation of Gnosticism and this idea that the body's bad and our souls are with God forever because if that was true, he'd shed his body, but he doesn't. He goes up bodily as Enoch did, as Jesus did. Um, so there's this, yeah, I get, I get it. There's this sense of um, the resurrection being assumed here and, and obviously the body being good. So anyway, maybe that's enough, but I just point that out there. You can do some thinking, you can do some, some additional cross-referencing if you want. Pastor, um, this expression, sons of the prophets, mm -hmm. uh, in verse 3, you know, it's talking about sons of the prophets in uh, Bethel. And then in verse 15, it's a different group, sons of the prophets in Jericho, who, who watch this at a distance. Um, is that believers in those cities or is there any you said it was mysterious but yeah well yeah we've talked about this as this phrase has come up in the study bibles brought up as much as we know which isn't much um, they it seems to be some kind of grouping of prophets in general the usage seems to be positive as though these are prophets of yahweh and faithful prophets but what their, what their prophetic role is and what their office is is quite a bit mysterious. And, you know, we even talked, like, maybe, maybe among the most mysterious is, remember that business where Saul goes and is, uh, is naked and there's all this kind of really strange stuff. And even to a degree, there's, there's, it's just a different world um, than our world here in the church age where they're receiving immediate revelation of God, from God and having... Um, you know, what we would call kind of miraculous and ecstatic experiences, um, which, are, which aren't, where those show up in Christianity, they generally show up where the gospel is first being proclaimed as a confirmation that, of the veracity of the word. The word being preached is, is um, shown to be true by various miracles, and then those miracles kind of recede. Uh, as, as it's already established now as supernaturally true. There's no more role for that, and so it recedes. And you see this periodically as Christianity spreads. Uh, most acutely you see it, like in the books, book of Acts and the generation of the apostles, and then it recedes. So a uh, follow-up question. Uh, didn't King, King Saul go to see a, a seer? Who was like a palm reader, or you're not well, talking? Yeah, there was that instance. Oh, too. that I mean, that yeah. was separate. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm just. These are not in that category. These are. Right. Okay. Yeah, it's not like a seer. It's not like a idolater. I mean, these these are generally spoken of, like in this context for sure. They're spoken of in terms of faithful prophets of Yahweh. Just what? Why are they called the sons of the prophets? Exactly. I mean, we can kind of loosely imagine. Is this to be understood as kind of a guild? Mm -hmm. Are these men married, not married? What exactly is their role and function in society, their role and function in light of the religious worship and life of, of Israel at this? Like, there's more questions than answers, you see. That's all I mean by it kind of being a mysterious grouping. Just if you're reading it through in the, you know what I mean? If you're reading it through by way of the narrative and the history, it, it all makes sense. There's nothing controversial about it. It's just when you stop and ask, like, well, who are these guys? And how did this work? And were they in every city? And, you know, the, the, it start, it's when you start asking questions, you just realize we don't know very much about them. And, and then you, if you try to start piecing the data together, you get kind of even more just questions. The more you learn about them, the more questions you sort of have. The text doesn't ever lay out, hey, this is who these guys are and, you know, how you would bec become a part of the sons of the prophets if you wanted to join up. I don't know. When I was looking in the study Bible, 
on page 555, and you might have already seen it, but it yeah. references sons of the prophets and how in ancient Israel, if you are a, a child of the faith, that you would consider people in the faith sons or relatives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I recall looking at this. So I think we've even I think we've even looked at this together in this. Uh, it's kind of confusing, but it helped me a little bit. Yeah. So so here it says, I'll just for the sake of those watching online. I don't know that I want to read all of this. I'll just read part of it. Yeah, sons of the prophets. Scholars have used a variety of expressions to explain the Hebrew phrase sons of the prophets. For example, German scholars in the 1800s viewed them as schools of prophets. Others have called them associations or guilds of prophets. Some translators have company of prophets. Just what does sons of the prophets mean? Hebrew and other Semitic languages use family terms to describe more than just family or blood relationships. Yeah, obviously. I mean, it's not like every prophet who had a son. Anyway, yeah. that'd be ridiculous, right? Yeah, you have to go to the orphanage for... It's like all the pastor's kids have to get together and commiserate. For example, Saul referred to David as his son. Yeah, 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 we don't need all this. Of course, people call each other son and father when they're not blood-related. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sons of Korah, sons of prophets. Okay, most likely means a group of prophets organized around a father figure who mentored or trained them in his work. The relationship of a son of a prophet to a prophet would be like that of a son to his father, well, you kind of see you kind of see that relationship in Elisha, where he says, "My father, my father," the you know, in reference to Elijah. The son would learn from his father, do his bidding, and eventually inherit his work and stature. These sons of the prophets may have existed for a long time in Israel. If one takes the procession of prophets from 1 Samuel 10:5 to be such a group, and Amos reference to this practice in his day, Amos 7:14. One sees that these groups were in existence for at least 340 years. During this time, the role and number of prophets flourished. Before this time and after the exile in Babylon, prophecy virtually disappeared. So that's as much as the study note, or the study Bible gives to us. Sons of the prophets. Yes, please. Going back to the water and the fire uh, that's going on here, then I started to think of fire at Pentecost, and I'm thinking, okay, the water can drown, as we say in baptism, Mm -hmm. we drown, and it can also give life. Mm -hmm. And the fire can destroy and also bring life. Yeah. I'm thinking, conjunction there. Yeah, typically the fire is viewed positively as purifying, right? Purifying. Yeah. Even in the root of purify, you have the word for fire. So, yeah. Um, okay, well, let's, let's see where we left off. With Elisha succeeding Elijah, chapter 2, verse 15. I think we hit all the major points, didn't we? Anything lingering? I think we got it. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. You know, it's very interesting because what's the anthropology here? And do you want a small s or a capital S? You know, the ancient text isn't going to specify one or the other. Um, if you have the small s spirit of Elisha, how does that work? What's the anthropology? What's a, what's a parallel to that? Or where is that anywhere else elucidated clearly in Scripture? What on earth would that mean? It's not the consciousness of, of Elijah. It's the way of Elijah. So maybe it makes more sense to say capital S spirit 
the, the spirit as it worked, as he worked in and through Elijah, now works in and through Elisha in the same way. That seems to be, that seems to make a little more sense to me. Otherwise, we just pass over it, not knowing exactly what it means, and that's all right, too. <laughs> so they say, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha, and they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold now. I mean, it is interesting when you think of Jesus handing over the Spirit and breathing his Spirit on his apostles and that kind of thing, like John chapter 20. Um, so, so it, because it is the apostles inherit the Spirit of the Lord, which is definitively the capital S Spirit. I just don't see why it wouldn't necessarily be the capital S Spirit here, too. And they said to him, this is verse 16, Behold now, there are with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the Spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. Yeah, they want to send out a search party. And he said, You shall not send. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent therefore fifty men, and for three days they sought him, but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho. And he said to them, Did I not say to you, Do not go? <laughs> now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. <clears throat> then he went to the spring of water, and threw salt in it, and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, Neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. So the, uh, with the water being good, then presumably the land would also become fruitful. While not identical, there is a parallel here to the famine um, that and, and Elijah... Um, of course, Elijah's prayer brings about the famine. Elijah, uh, his prayer um, brings an end to the famine. Here, uh, Elijah brings, Elisha brings an end to a famine of sorts. He makes the, uh, well, we're, he makes the bitter water sweet, in a sense. You remember how Moses throws in the, they, they come across the bitter water that nobody could drink seems there not to be a poisonous kind of water, whereas this water seems to be a poisonous kind of water. Um, but they throw in the, the wood, and it makes the water sweet. Here he throws in salt, and it heals the water um, so that it doesn't cause death or miscarriage. I'm sorry? The large S spirit, yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, clearly, yeah, clearly the Lord is with him to, to bless, in this case, the prophets, the place, the city where they're living. Okay, verse 23. Here is an interesting, maybe the most famous story of Elisha. He went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore forty-two of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. 
What's that? Yeah, there's probably. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is. I'm just looking at the study note here. It says, it says, small boys, this is the same modifier used of David in 1 Samuel 17. Some other note, like trying to figure out how old they are. I'm not really sure that helps. You know, yeah, whether they're, I don't know whether they're like, like if it helps our moral sensibilities, if they're like 7 or 14 or 21, I don't know. Boys uh, demand, it says, when it says go up, boys demanded that Elisha imitate Elijah and go up into heaven in order to prove that he was not an imposter. Um, go up, all, I mean, in that sense, what also does it mean? I mean, it kind of also means like, like die. It has that connotation, you know, yeah. And then, and then bald head, jeering at bald-headed Elisha's claim to be the successor of bushy-haired Elijah. That's if you take the note on 1.8. They, uh, the, uh, uh, they displayed the disdainful attitude present among the people of Israel. Oh, this specifies. These were female Syrian brown bears. Just in case you were wondering. I don't know how they're quite so sure about that. Maybe it's a technical term. Um, tor means mauled. No note on whether this was fatal. Maybe, maybe so. <laughs> it's easier to think that way. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, if it, I mean, if they, if they or some of them did perish, or there were serious injuries, or something to the effect. So, what, what then would be the? I mean, what then would be the message? That that the prophet represents more than his own person, but that the prophet represents God, and as they were despising him, so they were despising God, and so God sends the bears, and so that's, you know, you you have similar instances of very harsh harsh penalties on the people when they despise um, the one whom God has put in the office. And, and in such a way that it's not just personally despising him, but it's despising God himself. I, for example, when the people are after Moses time and time again, um, are they really after Moses? No, they're after God. He's just the face man of God. He's the one they can get their hands on. So... Um, when they're when they're yelling at Moses, you know, did you did you take us out of Egypt so that we die in the wilderness? We hate this food. This is you know this manna, and then snakes come. You know, it's, it's parallel to that. They're showing their hatred and disdain for God by attacking Elisha, and not snakes but bears come. So there's some you know it's not without precedent. It's a little weird and a little shocking, but it's not without precedent. And you can kind of see what's going on here. This is an attack on God. But it still is kind of strange. It still is kind of strange. Okay, that's chapter two. Any thoughts? Any questions? Yes. Um, it, re it reminds me strangely of the parable. When uh, the people keep being sent to give a message, and I can't remember the right parable, but then finally the son is sent. And oh, yeah. it's like God keeps sending people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think even today, I mean, he had to send his son. And, and now we're still being, we're still being, we're still mocking God. We're still tearing up mm. his prophets. His yeah, in many cases, God has uh, reserved his wrath for the last day and set that aside. Uh, but you can, you can see, uh, I mean, as the scriptures say, God will not be mocked. And uh, so He's certainly being mocked now in a lot of quarters. Yeah, yeah, for the time being. For the time being. For the time being. But yeah. God won't permit that to stand. Oh, wait. Wrong 
Yeah. Yeah. In the uh, study Bible notes on both of the sections that we've gone through today, mm -hmm. uh, they're indicated in the notes that it's law and gospel uh, both. Um, you know, is that the Christophanies that we're seeing uh, would be the gospels and what, what would be the law uh, aspect here? If you if you know well cer well I mean cer so cer certainly like what would be what would be what we call law or kind of condemnation things well what Alice was just reflecting on um, the the rejecting and mocking of God the rejecting and mocking of those whom God sends um, so we can see that we can see we can extend that to the to the third commandment and the way in which we ourselves in our sinful flesh have despised preaching in God's word. So that gives us cause to reflect and repent. That would be a key element of the law here. And a key element of the gospel would probably be to see the way in which God sends his prophets to deliver the faithful, to deliver those who do live in a repentant relationship with him. In this instance, um, immediately prior, he, uh, he restores the waters so that the, so that the sons of the prophets can drink. There's even a sense in which judgment becomes gospel for those, because, um, because righteousness rejoices in the punishment of evil in the sense of, hey, that we, need that to, we need that to end and be out of the way. And so when they're mocking, you know, when they're mocking, it's a weird dynamic. But what I'm trying to express is, obviously, it's punishment to the boys who are mocking, but to the rest, it's thank God that God won't be mocked, you know. And there, it, it's the same sense in which I think the saints in Revelation rejoice at the end when, when wickedness is put away and when wickedness is punished. It's like, good, we can finally be free of this. We need to be free of this. In the, in the interim, we, we rejoice when God curtails wickedness and blasphemy and that kind of thing. Yeah, so that's all I mean is there's a, there's a gospel element to that in the sense of believers that God, God does in fact care. God does in fact discipline and purge away evil, that kind of thing. Okay, um, well, we've just got two minutes left. Maybe we'll cut out those, those two minutes and just leave a little early today and just start at chapter 3 next week. The Lord be with you.